This is the Human Action Podcast with your hosts, Jeff Deist and Dr. Bob Murphy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to the Human Action Podcast. As always, I'm joined by my friend, economist, Dr. Bob Murphy. How are you doing, Bob? I'm doing good, Jeff. Well, today I thought we would talk about woke corporations generally, but more specifically about Disney. Obviously, Disney's been in the news this week. There have been some leaks about some of its internal employee video meetings. Uh, They've also come out in opposition, they meaning leadership and apparently most of the employees we can't know to the bill which Ron DeSantis recently signed in Florida dealing with what uh, grade school or elementary teachers say to kids about sex and sexuality. So this is all kind of bound up together. Uh, So Disney appears by all uh, outside appearances anyway to be a super woke corporation. That's kind of a right-wingy appellation. So I I thought rather than just using woke as one of Orwell's meaningless words where that's just something generally bad to, to people on the right, uh, that I would attempt to define it a little bit, just for purposes of this show anyway. Uh, you, some people may recall, I gave a speech on PC maybe five, six years ago now, where I defined it as the conscious designed manipulation of speech and language in order to change people's thoughts and attitudes and actions, right? That this was a designed manipulation of speech. So I think woke, well, it's not really definable, but we can put some parameters around it. It's, it's broader than PC for one. Because PC is really about language. Woke Mm -hmm. is broader than that. It's a whole worldview. It's basically accepting a rigid or dogmatic sense of left progressive cultural precepts and viewing the world and everything through that, not just politics, but business, personal relationships, family, church, etc. This idea that, you know, America is deeply, irredeemably racist, sexist, homophobic, capitalism is exploitative, you know, what, however you want to view it. I think that's, that's sort of a broad term for woke. And so when you think of it that way, is Disney really woke? Is it serving an agenda other than its shareholders or in today's terrible parlance, its stakeholders? Um, I don't know. So let's, let's start with that and give us your thoughts, Bob. Okay, sure. Yeah, you actually raised a bunch of interesting uh, issues there. So one is, you know, you're saying the Disney employees and how, and, and so yeah, you're right. I I wonder. Certainly, a Disney employee who actually was very much in favor of, I think it's HB fifteen fifty seven. You know, it certainly wasn't titled the "Don't Say Gay" Sanders bill. Yeah, um, they would keep their head down, obviously, right? And so it's hard to know that you know. Whereas the ones who are outraged by it, you know, have a walkout and, and so forth and, you know, don't feel any uh, shyness in letting the world know what their opinion is about that legislation. So again, you always, it is tricky to know, like I said, because there's that asymmetry there um, where they, you know, you'd be shunned yeah. by your coworkers at the very least, if not getting hauled before HR, if you said something on Facebook, how you were in support of it as a Disney employee. Um, yeah. As far as woke, I just want to say this because I remember originally the term woke was like I, I remember I saw a meme and it was like a cartoon and the, the girl, the runner, the wife, you know, says to the guy, Hey, can you, um, can you see if the baby's awake? And so then in the, in the bottom frame, the guy's poking his head into the dark bedroom and the, and the baby's in the crib and the baby's like standing up and he says, nine 11 was an inside job. <laughs> and then the guy yells over his shoulder to the girl. He said, yeah, the baby's woke. Yeah. And so it was, you know, it was, so in other words, and where, what, you know, why is it, they call it woke? I guess the idea is that, you know, oh, you're awake to what's really going on. So it's yeah. sort of like the way we use the term red pill, 
Yeah. And or or some do. Maybe you you're yeah. sick of that that terminology too. But th- that's what it used to mean. And then it's sort of more. And I don't know if anybody unironically calls themselves woke as a in a good way now, right. or if it's mere, if it's totally right. been just taken over by right. you know critics. So, but yes, to answer your question, I think yeah, the idea is it's not merely a policing of language, but it's more. Um, that yeah, you were raised to believe we live in a society where everybody's equal before the law and that the, mm-hmm. you know, that Thomas Jefferson was a great man who believed in liberty. But here, let me tell you the truth. You know, America was fundamentally based on slavery and the exploitation of women and Native Americans. Da, 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 da. And so that's you're being woke because now you're awakened to the reality. So, mm-hmm. again, it's it, it, it I think it is a little bit ironic when some people who would call themselves red pilled would make fun of that because they're both thinking the same. Th- in other words, they, they have the same view that the standard person's a moron who's had the wool pull over their eyes. And I really see the truth that these powerful people are trying to trick us about. It's just, they disagree on the particulars. Well, as far as Disney's wokeness, I mean, here's the thing. There's sort of two ways to look at this. One is that they can do whatever they want. They're a publicly traded private company. And if they want to uh, make movies that appeal to a certain subset of America or make other, uh, have other products, you know, ESPN's owned by Disney, ESPN's pretty woke. If they want to do this and, and shade things politically or present a pro-LGBT agenda in their offerings, whatever, that's their business, and they'll suffer the consequences for it. That's, that's sort of one view of it. The other view, though, when we think about critics on the right, we say, you know, your job's to make money. And you mm-hmm. should make movies that appeal to the to the most people, and you should care about all your customers. You shouldn't be alienating, you know, half of your potential customer base with all this woke nonsense. I, you know, that's that's certainly true. But I think if we, from you know, if we're talking about let's say Mises or Rothbard, what's the goal of a company? Yes, it's to make money. But within the the framework of consumer sovereignty and and value, right? In other words, if if Ford Motor Company makes cars. So Ford may morph into making EVs in the future as opposed to combustion cars because that may be what I would argue a mixture of the market and the government making that happen. It's not really a market phenomenon. I think EVs is a whole other show. But nonetheless, Ford would morph from combustion cars to EVs and it would change its offerings and service lines, but it would still be a car company trying to make money. So if you came Mm. along to Ford and said, look, I've got this business plan. You're going to scrap all these cars entirely and you're going to sell widgets. You're going to retool your factories and sell these little widgets uh, because I'm going to prove to you that you're going to make way more money you know, the, the margins on this are way higher. You're going to have fewer employees. You know, cars are a diet. You know, you're going to make way more money. I think there's a lot of people at Ford, engineers included, who would say, no, you know, we at our soul, in our hearts, we're a car company. We make cars. So, so there's a tension there, you know, th- this idea that if you could just make more money, people would drop what they do for a career and go sell crack because they can make more money. Well, no, mm-hmm. most people wouldn't do that. So companies don't just exist to make more money, they they exist for a variety of reasons. And I think um, it's that same thought process that has allowed the idea of stakeholders to seep in. And and when you get into stakeholders, then I think Disney employees and Disney management start to look at themselves as these sort of heroic, noble uh, progressives who want to be on the right side of history. And, you know, they don't really have to do anything difficult like you had to, to in the civil rights movement 
in the 50s and 60s where you might actually get beat up or arrested. They don't have to do anything like mm. that, but they can signal and they can say, you know, we're going to make these movies which feature uh, an LGBT lead character or something like that. So I think that they, they view themselves in some broader civilizational effort to uh, to promote LGBT and rectify the, the sins of the past. And so this is this is... This is the stakeholder worldview, I think, at Disney. Yeah, I, I think those are all great points, Jeff. Um, and, and you're right. Strictly speaking, from an Austro-Libertarian perspective, it's it's not that, oh, a corporation should go out and just do everything to maximize profits or dividends or you know even share price. You could say that that you know that's a, a good working assumption as to you know how little it'll go, but and I think really the like Mises point about economic calculation and profit and loss accounting is just that that gives you a guide. So you're mm-hmm. certainly allowed to, as a business, you know, uh, if you're a, a magazine seller, you can refrain from carrying pornographic magazines, or you can refrain from carrying some particular magazine that's, you know, it's got a political perspective that you just, you know, find it, it, intolerable. You're allowed to do that. Or Chick-fil-A, they probably would make more profit if they were open on Sunday, mm-hmm. right? So, but, mm-hmm. so it's not that that person, you know, that, that Chick-fil-A's management is not following the dictates of what the consumers want in terms of Austrian theory. It's just saying that is there. And that's why Rothbard, as, as you know, Jeff, he didn't actually like the term consumer sovereignty. He preferred yeah. individual self-sovereignty because, again, he, he thought the way consumer sovereignty was sometimes used, it made it look like the producers have no say whatsoever right. and everything has to be you know, what the consumer's ordering you to do. And obviously you you do have some discretion. Just an example I would use uh, is just say someone is, who could go work at a hedge fund and, and drive three hours into the city every, you know, and be stuck in traffic and make $400,000 a year or go work at the local library and make 40,000 a year and just have a nice peaceful, there's nothing in economics or libertarianism that says, oh, you have to go and do the job that maximizes your hourly pay that, there's nothing, it's right. just, but you need to know what the numbers are to rationally make the decision in terms of economic calculation. So the numbers are important and they guide people, but it's not that they dictate their behavior. Um, and so, yes, yeah, but also too, as far as Disney, what you're saying, the, the people on the right for years have been saying things like the family fun movies are the ones that make the most at the box office. Whereas these artsy mm-hmm. avant-garde, oh, wow, so-and-so really pushed the limit at his you know career defining role Typically, it's not a movie that brings in a ton of money, but yet, yeah, if you're a movie star and you're already rich, you you want to have amongst other things besides your fat bank account is, you know, the the accolades from your peers as to, wow, you really pushed the limits with that depiction you did in such and such role. And so, yeah, I think there's there's that element as well. The same thing for Disney employees that. Yeah, yeah, they need to have a nice job or whatever, but also certainly well in in those leaked so-called leaked, re- again, how leaked was it if it's a, a big, wide company meeting? But the, I think the, I forget the exact wording she used, but she, that executive was saying something like, oh yeah, when I used to work at other companies, you know, I couldn't get away with this, but now I come to Disney and I found I was. So it's, um, you know, in their case, they were, they were saying there wasn't this, this apparent trade-off. And I guess ultimately part of what's driving this and the, what the rights complained about for so long is that on the left, if they're outraged by something, they very effectively organize boycotts, whereas the right, it's either because they're mm-hmm. too lazy or they have some principled reason, like no, no, I wouldn't use my money as a weapon, and and may, hey, maybe we should. Yeah, well, so let's talk a little bit more about Disney uh, boycotting Disney. By the way, <laughs> would require boycotting just 
to name a few, Lucasfilms, Marvel, Pixar Studios, ESPN, ABC, 20th Century Studios, Touchstone Pictures, Hulu, A&E, the History Channel, and the Lifetime Channel. Now, let me, let me tell you this. I got no problem boycotting the Lifetime Channel. That's the <laughs> easiest boycott in the history of boycotts. But, uh, I mean, this is a gigantic company that owns a lot. And so when you think about corporate power, consolidation, et cetera, you say, well, why aren't shareholders mad at Disney management for going woke? Because there's a whole bunch of red states out there full of people in Nebraska who want to watch Cinderella. You know, they don't want Mark Ruffalo as Cinderella. Um, Mm -hmm. They want a petite girl as Cinderella or or, uh, Tinkerbell or anything else Disney. So... Okay, well, yeah, you can buy Disney stock. Um, sorry, as I ruffle through here, you can buy it for about 140 bucks a share right now. Woke hasn't hurt Disney uh, in shareholder price going back to the early 90s. It traded well below 50 bucks, uh, and it's basically gone up the whole time since the company went public, all the way through the 2010s. Now, in early uh, 2020. When we had the big, uh, you know, COVID outbreak and presumably people stopped going to theaters and some other things, there was a a pretty severe dip for a a few months in 2020. So it had a few uh, quarterly year over year profit um, slowdowns. The rate at which revenues were growing went negative. But apart from that, I mean, Disney stock's been pretty solid over the years, Uh, so again, 140 bucks. But here's here's the kicker: as, like with so many of these publicly traded companies, institutional investors own 60 odd percent of it, including, of course, uh, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street. So yeah, you can go buy your 10 shares for 1,400 bucks. Um, but what that's going to get you in terms of influence with Disney management is pr- presumably negligible. So I, I guess when you talk about does does woke hurt them? So far, Bob, apparently not, at least not at the bottom line in terms of share price and revenues. Right. And it's, you know, presumably it's the kind of thing where you, they, they do have such inertia, such market power, if you want to use that phrase, that they can get away with angering their fans up to a point. And then unfortunately, you know, from their point of view, they'll probably if they push it too much, then it's a rapid you know fall off and then they suffer the kind of, it would be hard to, to rebuild trust. So but what you're right, it's it, it would have to take a lot for uh, people to, you know, really go out of their way to, like you say too, also to do the research. To, like it's one thing to say, oh, I don't want to be watching a movie where, it, you know, I see the Walt Disney Castle at the beginning, like that. But if there's all these other things too that are actually Disney, and, and you know, so does that count as that part of my boycott too? Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it it is tricky for people, and, and it's it's time consuming. And so mm-hmm. yeah, I think they're like say their their calculation is. Most people aren't going to do that. Yeah, this will blow over. Well, and it may be subtle, too. I mean, those of us who spend time on Twitter may be seeing this very differently than just the average American parent who's got a four-year-old and isn't really paying attention to any of this. And they may notice virtually no change in their Disney offerings, right? I mean, that it's very subtle. Um, and so I don't think we can we can count on that. I, you know, Paul Swick, who's a professor... Uh, a uh, professor of economics, also a senior fellow with the Mises Institute. He, he gave a talk here just a week or so ago at our research conference on, in part on this topic of woke corporations. And one thing he pointed out, which I thought was interesting, is that, you know, not all the incentives, which we imagine, 
are pecuniary. We think executives want to reach certain revenue targets, profitability targets, and trigger a bonus. So instead of making you know, 20 million bucks, they'll make 30, 40 million bucks. For a lot of the top executives in this country, the bonuses are where the real pay is, and the baseline pay is not very much. It's only a fraction. So, uh, but Paul Swick says, no, there are lots of other sort of psychic or societal benefits to being woke. Uh, Larry Fink at BlackRock talks about this as well. I mean, you know, you get invited to the Oscars, for example. Mm-hmm. You fly around and go to places like Davos as the Disney is a Disney honcho, and you talk about how you're, you know, trying to make your films more sustainably or to have more diversity, equity, and inclusion in your films, uh, to have more LGBT representation. Right? I mean, that gets you certain perks. So when we think about Again, this broader picture that somehow we're on the right side of history. Um, it wasn't that long ago. I mean, Sony, the Sony Corporation has fallen mightily. They used to be an absolute kingpin. And they were, they were a Disney. Absolutely. And much like Disney has intertwined itself with Florida politics and Anaheim politics and Burbank politics over the years and gotten a lot of concessions, uh, Sony was very much welded with the Japanese government. So back in the day when Sony was riding high, I mean, they were making 100-year plans. Mm -hmm. And when we think of corporate America, we think, oh, all they care about is the next quarterly bottom line. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a tension here. I guess from a societal perspective, we kind of want executives to be thinking long-term, especially when a company gets to be as big and has as much momentum as a Disney. But the flip side is that um, shareholders don't have 100 years uh, to get paid and sell their stock. So there's, there's, when companies get this big, you start to wonder where the focus is. Right. And it's, it's interesting too, uh, just to give the obligatory, uh, explanation of how government intervention makes this stuff worse is so, so yes, it's true that, you know, there can be entrenched interest and it's hard for the average shareholder to do something, you know, there's talk of like, oh, management has taken over and they're, and they're mm-hmm. you know, bloated. It's just all the cronies, the CEO and his buddies and the, and the average shareholder has nothing. But in a genuine free market, the mechanism for dealing with that would be a so-called hostile takeover where somebody just realizes this. It doesn't have to be about wokeism. It could just be in general. If the company's right. being run poorly, then, you know, some outside person could come in and realize that, oh, if we just cleaned house, got rid of the current management and replaced them with people who knew what they were doing then, you know, the share price would drop, jump up. And so the so-called, you know, hostile takeover artist comes in, offers the existing shareholders more than they have right now. And then that's how they get a controlling interest. But of course, there's all sorts of regulations designed to hamper that, the ability of someone to do that. And just, you know, the whole culture, just the very term hostile takeover, it, it's all voluntary. You know, what it means mm-hmm. is that the, the existing management doesn't like it. It's not that they're taking the shares from the owners at, you know, at gunpoint, they're giving them a price and they voluntarily sell. So, um, so anyway, that, that's just an example is that this stuff, one might jump to the conclusion like, oh, see, capitalism doesn't work out the way you guys, you know, teaching your theories. But again, with a lot of this stuff, the, the inertia is there. And also too, just things. So I agree with Paul that yes, there's the cultural thing and they want to be invited to these parties. And it's just like, it's better to be, Warren Buffett than Charles Koch in mm-hmm. terms of just how you're accepted by people. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's not fun to have a bunch of people hating you every day. <laughs> Other yeah. things equal. You'd rather that not be the case. Sure. And so, 
Um, but beyond that, too, just the, the government has so many levers, like with you know the SEC and FTC and whatever. There's all sorts of things. These large corporations, if they want to do something, somebody in Washington can thwart their plans if they're just not playing ball on something else. So there is this general thing where you kind of want to stay in the good graces of the people in Washington, mm-hmm. even if there's not literally a law saying you have to have more inclusiveness in your product set. Well, again, it would probably take maybe a year of red numbers at Disney to really shake things up, right? I mean, that would require a lot of consumers choosing not to avail themselves of an awful lot of media and entertainment outlets, like I mentioned, ESPN and Hulu and all these other companies. So you wonder about that. You also wonder um, whether Disney is going to potentially turn DeSantis into a populist hero in this fight, right? I mean, they have always been the king of Florida politics between their money and their political pull. And of course, at one point, there was probably a threat, well, if Disney didn't come here or didn't expand here or left here, I don't think that's really a a threat anymore. I mean, Disney World around Orlando is so vast. The studios, the parks, the, the related things, I don't think, you know, they could ever really leave. So, I guess that's that's the threat here is that Disney um, overshoots a little bit and finds out that um, DeSantis and average Floridians have a little bit more power than they imagine. So that's that's interesting. And and when you bring up individuals who don't have much influence as a shareholder at Disney, well, it's all individuals at the end of the day. What's Vanguard? Vanguard is just a gigantic set of mutual funds and money market accounts full of uh, little old ladies and average people's 401ks and, you know, people who make well under $100,000 a year. I mean, Vanguard is just, at the end of the day, a bunch of individuals. You could say the same about BlackRock. It's just that those resources have been pooled or concentrated under the management or direction of a relatively small amount of people. So the idea that um, you know, these are faceless corporations owned by faceless institutional investors. Yeah, I mean, I understand that argument, but it's also incorrect at, in a certain sense. So I, I guess I don't see this changing unless Disney really suffers losses. I mean, this, this strikes me, especially with people home more under COVID, with all the entertainment sources, with all these channels, all these media outlets, this, you know, this insatiable desire for content and movies 24 seven. Um, I think people who are, who, you know, want to hurt Disney financially with a boycott or whatever, I've heard that the daily wire is considering creating an alternative media company to take on Disney. That's a pretty tough hill to climb. Yeah, exactly. And also because, because then you run into the danger too, where uh, it's much better now, but like years ago, like Christian rock was, was very clunky. Like it, it wasn't, you know what I mean? It wasn't like real music. It was Christian, you know, it, where, like I said, now it's, it's a lot better than it used to be. And so that happens a lot. Like you wonder, would you want to watch movies produced by the, you know, daily wire network or something? And it maybe you would, I don't know. It, we'll, we'll see, but it's, uh, th- there is that danger when something is like, when it's creation is not about, Oh, we have this artistic vision, but instead we got to have our own platform to put out stuff instead of these, you know, these crazy progressives. Um, yeah, and the, and the other thing too, like it was, for example, with, with, with Netflix, my wife and I were boycotting them for a while because of that. I forget the name of it with the one with the, the underage girls 
that came out and we were just like, this is this is the last straw. But even that was tricky because there were shows we wanted to watch. And so then we'd mm-hmm. be at somebody else's house and they had Netflix. And like, well, we're not giving Netflix more money on the margin if we watch it over here. So you were, right? fr- so you we were, were, you were free riding. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you, you run into issues. like So it is hard to manage a boycott when people do like the other products. Again, it's the same thing, too, like with people not liking what the Russian government is doing and then trying to say, well, what's the correct response? And, you know, it's it, it gets it gets tricky. So and difficult to enforce. So what does this say about the socialist or communist critique of capitalism that it consolidates power inevitably under oligarchs who end up uh, transferring all this power and wealth to themselves? Well, yeah, just to elaborate or extend what I said a few minutes ago, I so I, I do think Austro-libertarian types can't be naive and they shouldn't just say, hey, private companies can do what they want and be ignorant of the fact that in the real world right now, there's a lot of problems with that sort of, uh, you know, simplistic uh, argument, glib argument. Um, but it, it is true just as a baseline, like in a in a genuine free market where everything's voluntary. Yeah, there would certain people would have much more influence on the mm-hmm. culture than others. Like that's obviously going to be the case, just like certain people would contribute more to physics than others would. Um, but yeah. ultimately, like you were saying before, that Vanguard, all these things are companies that are ultimately you know made up of constituent elements and people as long as they have the the freedom to transfer their allegiance and take their property out and move it somewhere else that would be the ultimate check but like i say right now there really are some institutional things in place that that hamper that process so it's you know you you don't want to fall into the trap of just like how anytime we would point to a, a, a communist society and say look at how awful that was and then the communists would say that wasn't real communism mm-hmm. Again, it, I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do the the opposite and just say anytime somebody points out a problem with the U.S. and say, "Well, we don't have a true free market here." So, so I do, I do understand that, but um, I I guess I'll put it this way that, and I have been surprised too. Like I don't know if, if you were surprised yet, but like during COVID, and I couldn't believe how long certain products were unavailable. Like yeah. like the uh, the disinfectant wipes, like the Clorox, those were gone for like eighteen months, and I would have thought the market would have ramped that up and, and fixed that. And so right. it's it's more, I just have less faith in humanity and, and pro- organizations, period, than I used to. But the government is even worse than I thought 20 years ago, too. So it's it's not that the, that, oh, well, hey, maybe collectivism is better than, than we used to think. It's just I'm things don't work as well as maybe a, an economist thinks in his, uh, in his theories. Well, I wonder what Disney, which is mostly a content company, I wonder what Disney would be without IP. Right, I mean that's mm-hmm. that, that's certainly a vast subsidy of sorts uh, for the company, but I want to touch a little bit farther on stakeholder capitalism. There's some great articles on Mises.org if you're interested um, by Frank Shostak and other people. Check it out. Just Google uh, stakeholder capitalism on our site. But uh, you know, I saw a video the, the other day excuse me, with Larry Fink from BlackRock talking about this, you know, companies are just going to have to be forced to change. And of course, rich guys like him who control the capital that flows into those companies, especially publicly traded ones, are going to force them to change through wrangling seats on their board and demanding it in exchange for investment capital. I mean, Larry Fink can do that. Let's be fair. And he was talking about diversity and equity and inclusion 
and being more uh, woke, I guess, in your general business practices. And, and basically, he was espousing stakeholder theory. I mean, a couple of problems with that is, first of all, he's a gazillionaire. So it's easy to, to have this stakeholder nonsense when you have six giant houses in the Hamptons and, and uh, you know, Hollywood or, or, excuse me, Beverly Hills or wherever you do. Uh, I mean, that's that strikes me as tone deaf. But also, you know, Larry Fink's whole career has been investing in companies profitably. And that means those underlying companies made money. That means they um, controlled their, ex- their expenses and had revenue sufficient to, have, to accumulate capital. And that capital accumulation is the, the whole basis of a society that's getting wealthier and more productive. And that capital accumulation is the whole basis of having material wealth trickle down to average people. Right now, average people can fly on an airplane. Average people can own uh, you know, luxury items that once used to be luxury items. So wh- when you get into the stakeholder capitalism mindset, basically you're saying that you know, profits are, if not evil and bad, at least secondary to our larger goals. So you know, you're really, you're really you know, offering up an egalitarian message. And we all know where that goes. That goes to less capital accumulation and, and fewer new Larry Finks in the world. And he may be A-OK with that, right? If, he, if, if Larry Fink or the aforementioned Warren Buffett lost 90% of their wealth tomorrow, they would still be absolute centimillionaire financial elites, even with 10%. But if the average guy or gal whose net worth is twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars loses ninety percent of their wealth uh, in the new uh, inflationary woke hyperculture, then you know they're they're dead. So um, you know this idea that we are we're going to turn away uh, from the goose that lays the golden egg, which is profits and capital accumulation, and we're done with that. And we're going to turn our attention to these broader societal things. Either he doesn't really mean it or, you know, and he's a cynical or he's crazy. I mean, those are the two explanations when someone whose entire gigantic net worth has been accumulated by understanding, you know, which companies were going to make money. Um, For Mm -hmm. him to say this now at an advanced age, uh, you know, I... That's the kind, that's where pitchforks come from, right? I, I hope right, these Larry right. Finks think about that side of of the stakeholders as well, people with pitchforks. Yeah, you raise a bunch of good points there, um, and, and that's the thing too. I've been doing on my own podcast a series on Klaus Schwab, the World Economic uh, Forum founder, because his his whole thing for decades has been this: you know, we need to switch from shareholder to stakeholder capitalism. And as we were chatting about before the show, Jeff, and you were saying how they have very particular stakeholders in mind. You know, it's not that, oh, well, what about the Christian conservatives? Let's make sure that their needs are addressed, you know, and these these social issues like that. That's never going to be, you know, the, the, the stakeholders who are going to influence the decision. Um, and it's, I guess, another possibility, too, though, you know, be, when you're mentioning, like, why would it be that the people that got to the top now want to change the rules I mean, you do see that pattern like with the Vanderbilt and uh, and and such, you know, the, like the so-called robber barons back in the day. They would make their fortune in a pretty free, free market right. and then were very famously, you know, for all these progressive interventions. But there you could cynically explain that, you know, maybe they do just feel guilty and they want to, you know, do something. It could be that. Or it could be more cynically that once you get to the top, then by making it 
by hampering competition, you kind of ensure that your grandkids are still going to be on top too. And, you know, by having high income taxes and things like that, it prevents like the medium sized businesses from displacing, you know, the, the current industry incumbents um, by putting all these regulations. Just like a lot of large, large corporations supported, uh, you know, like after the Tyco scandals and stuff, like all the accounting overhaul and things that a oh, large yeah. corporation can handle a bunch of extra fixed costs better than a mid-sized corporation. So even though, you know, Ayn Rand famously saying that the, the, the big corporations were the most persecuted minority in America, big business, it's actually the other way around that, you know, big business in many cases behind the scenes is okay with this legislation because they basically write it. Yeah. And so, yeah, they might, they might in a, in a say, yeah, it'd be better to, to not have it at all. But given that this legislation is going to exist, we want to craft it and then we actually do better because it's, you know, we can bear this burden better than our, our well, small Bob, far, uh, far be it from us to not allow cynicism on the Human Action Podcast <laughs> when it comes to the Larry Finks and the Black Rocks of the world. We got to wrap it up, folks. If you happen to be in the Orlando area or within driving distance or flying distance even of the Orlando area, Bob and I are going to be appearing there in just a couple of weeks. Go to Mises.org slash events to find out about that. It's on a Saturday in May. I'm sorry I don't have the date at the top of my mind, but nonetheless, Bob and I will be there. We'll be talking about his new book, Understanding Money Mechanics, which is an absolutely masterclass in money. It is, uh, you know, soup to nuts about the history of money, how money arises. It's got a lot of Menger. It's got a lot of Mises. It's got a lot of Bomberwerk. Um, it, it's got the history of the gold standard. It's got the history of central banking. It goes through how we determine interest rates, um, how bank flows work with respect to government treasuries and central banks. It even goes into Bitcoin and crypto, and it has some chapters on this sort of uh, new monetary policy we find ourselves in since the crash of 0708. So everybody who attends is going to get a copy of the book, and so we hope to see all of you in Orlando in a couple of weeks. So that said, Bob, great to talk to you again. Have a great weekend, everybody. Catch Jeff and Bob next week for another show. But in the meantime, you can find a world of content like this at Mises.org.